History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 456th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we have a location that has been requested many times in the past, and I've always kind of brushed it aside. Because when it comes to things like the Amityville Horror or The Conjuring or The Exorcist, all of these quote-unquote real-life demon possession kind of things, I kind of poo-poo them. But there's enough that seems to be going on at the Conjuring house that I thought, you know, maybe we should go ahead and take a look at it. So that's what this episode is about. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Wayne, Beth, Michelle with two L's, Cindy, Alex, Jess, Mardell, Brian, Tom, Martha, Corey with an I, Adrian, Brandy, and Hannah with no H at the end. Thank you for joining us in our Facebook group. And now this moment, Noddity. Typically, when someone decides to go out for a meal at their favorite restaurant, they expect to enjoy some good eats and nice conversation. Well, that wasn't the case for a restaurant's patron in the province of Sichuan, China. While the diner was seated in the outdoor courtyard, they glanced down at the stone floor and noticed something unusual. It appeared to be a dinosaur footprint. Expert paleontologists were called in to examine the prints. It was determined that the prints were 100 million years old, and there were two sets of prints identified. A 3D printer was used to analyze and discover which dinosaurs were responsible for the ancient prints. It turned out that sauropods were the mysterious producers of the footprints. Fossils are not commonly found in Sichuan. These prints were in exceptional condition due to what was located on the property prior to the restaurant. As it turns out, a chicken farm was originally here, and during that time, the area was covered with dirt and sand for hens to lay eggs on. The soil material created padding for the additional preservation of the dinosaur footprints. When the restaurant owners purchased the land, they removed the loose soil, and upon discovering the natural stone, they liked the look and decided to keep the courtyard in its natural state. Finding any type of fossil is always exciting, but having chickens aid in any fossil's pristine preservation certainly is odd. Cheeky cheeky, come to Mort. Oh, oh. Nice dinosaur. And now, this month in history. In 
month of October, on the 6th, in 1927, the first feature-length talkie film was premiered. This was The Jazz Singer, starring Al Jolson and Mae McAvoy. The musical drama was the first to showcase a synchronized recorded musical score, as well as lip-synchronous singing and speech. The film's storyline features a young boy who loves jazz and ragtime and wants to become a performer. The boy's father is a cantor and does not approve, kicking his son out after discovering the boy was performing anyway. The Jazz Singer is a romance that has the lead fall in love with another performer, find success as a performer, and ultimately ends with the father forgiving his son prior to passing away. The film was produced by Warner Brothers using the Vitaphone sound-on-disc method, which began the end of the silent film era. Although the film was not the first to feature talking and sound, prior releases were only short films. The movie was based on a play by the same title written by Samson, Raphaelson, and the plot was based on his short story, The Day of Atonement. The Jazz Singer won several awards, and in 1996 it was chosen for preservation in the National Film Registry of Culturally, Historical, or Aesthetically Significant Motion Pictures. This film is also ranked at number 90 by the American Film Institute as one of the best American films of all time. The Farmhouse on Roundtop Road Sounds like a quaint little place to visit. This farmhouse is anything but quaint. This is the location that inspired the movie The Conjuring. The legend of haunting activity at this farmhouse is nearly unbelievable. There are literally hundreds of people who claim to have had strange experiences here. For decades, the home was closed from the public. But since 2019, it's been open to investigations. People who visit claim that it does not disappoint. Join us as we try to unravel the truth behind the history and hauntings of The Conjuring House. Kelly, most people have either seen The Conjuring movie or at least heard of The Conjuring House. This is a case that gained notoriety when Ed and Lorraine Warren got involved, and The Conjuring movie features the moment in time when they investigated the property in October of 1973, and the Perone family was living in the farmhouse. You all know, listeners, when we hear that the Warrens are involved with a case, our fraud hackles go up. (laughs) Yeah, just a little bit. I don't really believe much of anything that came out of the Warrens. As I like to say, maybe early, early on, they were legit. And I think Lorraine maybe had some sensitivities. But I think a lot of stuff got blown out of proportion for fame and money and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think perhaps some liberties were taken. Yeah. But this haunting seems to have enough evidence that it actually might be true that something supernatural is going on at this location. We doubt it has anything to do with demons, but it does seem some spirits have called this home. But before diving into this, let's first talk about our thoughts on demon possession and demons, because that's one thing when it comes to The Conjuring House and the movie, they really emphasize that this seems to be some kind of demonic activity. And even if it's not that, the entity that The Conjuring movie tries to blame all the haunting on is supposedly a witch who is a Satanist and worshiping Satan and sacrificing children to Satan and that kind of thing. So, Kelly, do you believe there's such things as demons? I absolutely do, but I don't think that they're quite as common as many people do. Mm -hmm. Do you have thoughts on what a demon is? I tend to believe that they're fallen angels. How about you? 
Well, for me, I did a whole episode for The Ghost in You on demons in particular. And on that, I discuss, now these are going to be some theories that might be out there for some people. I do, of course, believe in demons. Since I'm a Christian, the Bible's pretty clear that there is such a thing as demons. I also think it explains kind of where these demons have come from. Now, I don't fall on the side of thinking that they are fallen angels, but I think they are a product of them. So back in Genesis, we hear the story about the angels coming down on Mount Hermon, and they basically get together with some human women, and they have some offspring. And these offspring propagate through the years and everything. We have this flood that comes along. Everybody knows the story of Noah's Ark. And I believe that that came through to take out all of these Nephilim. Well, Nephilim, to me, seem like they must be half human and half angelic. They have some kind of a human soul, but because they've come from these fallen angels that are considered evil and in rebellion, I don't know that their souls can be redeemed or what have you. So as far as I'm concerned, they're condemned to be around here somewhere. So whenever we run into anything that seems like it's demonic possession or demons, that's what I think it is. It's these Nephilim spirits that have nowhere else to go. And since they're spirits, they want to be in a human body. And for a lot of these demons... If you think about the human body, we are made up of, what is it, 90% water? I believe so. They are out in like a desert. If you're not in a human body, it's like a desert out there. And that's like where it's like they've been banished to that area. So they're very thirsty. So they want to get inside of a human body because we've got all this liquid in there. And then they can control the body and everything and feel like they're living again. Along those lines, I think that demon possession is very, very rare. But I also think that if somebody is demon-possessed, it's not like what we see in the movies, where they're spitting out pea soup, or their heads twisting around, they're thrashing around on a bed, undulating, cursing, all this other stuff. I think demon possession is much more subtle, to the point where I think we could be walking around with people that are demon-possessed and not even know it. That would not surprise me. So that's kind of where I lie when it comes to demon possession and demons. We'd love to know from the listeners, what are your thoughts and theories on that kind of thing? I mean, I don't think there's a specific wrong or right answer because, again, this is one of those things that we just probably will never understand, at least not in this lifetime. I do believe that you could go into a location that could have these demonic spirits in them. However, I think, again, it's very rare. Why would they want to just hang out? in a certain location, unless they're feeding off of maybe some pain or fear or something that's in that place. Like if somebody was murdered somewhere or had a horrible death somewhere or something, maybe that's something that attracts them. When it comes to the conjuring house, the thing that would lead me to believe that maybe we might have some demon possession has nothing to do with any of the people that might have been on the property, but maybe what this property might be. Could it possibly be some kind of a portal? Let's circle back through the history and see what we can find. First, the house is located in a city that is made up of villages. The city is Burrowville, and the village is Harrisville. Burrowville is named for James Burrow, who was born in Providence on April 25, 1772. He eventually became Attorney General for Rhode Island from 1797 to 1814 and was a member of the State House of Representatives from 1813 to 1816. Burl was also Chief Justice to the State Supreme Court and a U.S. Senator for the state of Rhode Island from 1817 until his death in 1820. He was so important to the state that the town had originally been called Gloucester, decided to change their name to Burlville to honor the man. Before this, though, the Nipmuc people were here. This was a tribe that spoke an Algonquin language. 
they helped keep starving European settlers alive and in return contracted smallpox. That's great. Thanks, right? Here's some food. Thanks for giving us your horrible disease. As settlers continued to encroach on their land, they joined the King Philip's War and lost and found many of their numbers sold into slavery in the West Indies. So by the late 1670s, the Nipmuc were no longer here. In 1731, the town of Gloucester was incorporated, and when Burrowville was founded, its location gave access to many lakes and rivers. That meant this whole area would become mill towns. There was also a lot of farming. Villages were created around the original mill complexes, and this is how villages identified themselves. So when a mill had a particular name, that's what the village became named by. Gotcha. So I'm assuming you had the owner of the mill, which in this case might be Harris, then they would call this mill town Harrisville. The Nipmuc River was directly north of Harrisville and bordered it as it joins the Clear River on its way down to the Blackstone. It was in this village that the Richardson family was deeded land in 1680, and it was surveyed by THE John Smith. This property was more than a thousand acres and was eventually sold off in parcels to other families. The Arnold family owned this particular parcel and built a large wooden farmhouse here in 1736 that now covers 3,109 square feet. Holy smokes. I'm assuming that over time, I couldn't find anything about what the original property looked like that they've added on over the years, because that's a really big farmhouse. Indeed it is. The house stayed in the same family for eight generations, but under different names because the women of the family couldn't inherit the property. So from the Arnold family, the property passed to the Butterworth family and then to the Kenyon family. The Perone family would break the generational ownership when they bought the property in December of 1970. This was Carolyn, Roger, and their five daughters, Andrea, Nancy, Christine, Cindy, and April. They stayed for a decade, and then the Schwartz family purchased the property in 1980. Norma Sutcliffe became the new owner in 1987, and she was the one who had to endure all the looky-loos coming by the property after the Conjuring franchise of movies came out. She had enough by 2019 and sold to Corey and Jen Heinzen, who opened up the property to tours and investigations. In May of 2022, Jacqueline Nunez purchased the property for $1.5 million, and she expanded the paranormal and historical business and has a team of tour guides helping with investigations. Nunez has had a connection to the spiritual side of things her whole life and has had many experiences throughout her life. The Heinzen's daughter, Madison, is a caretaker of the property. So you can now go to the Conjuring House's website and book your tours and your investigations and find out who all the different tour guides and caretakers are there. I believe Jason Hawes, one of his daughters, is one of the caretakers too. She and her husband call themselves the paranormal couple and they're part of the team as well. The stories of haunting activity began with the Perone family and the supernatural connection to them seemed to call to Carolyn, the matriarch. She discovered the farm by accident in June of 1970, according to daughter Andrea Perone. Now, I don't know what she means by finding it by accident. I'm thinking maybe she was driving past it or something. It was like, wow, that looks like a really cool place. And at that time, there was a whole bunch of acreage that came with the farmhouse. Over time, the Perones are going to have to sell a bunch of that to help pay their bills and stuff. So now it doesn't sit on very much acreage anymore. Andrea wrote the trilogy House of Darkness, House of Light that detailed the experiences her family had during the decade they owned the Conjuring House. Andrea's always struck us as an honest woman. And while the Warrens got involved in this case, which might make some people think that the claims are dubious, Roger, Andrea's father, threw Ed Warren out of his house. That for us makes the prone story a little bit more real. 
We can't explain how the Prones managed to stay for 10 years or how Norma Sutcliffe managed over 30 years in the house. But based on experiences people have had since the home opened to the public, there can be no doubt that something paranormal is going on at this house. Now, part of what Andrea says with them staying for 10 years at the house is because what happens to some people who move into a haunted house, you've put all your money into that house, and now it's like you don't want to lose your money, so you end up staying. Although based on some of the stuff that supposedly went on here, it'd be really hard for me to keep my five children at a home that I thought might be dangerous. Yeah, I agree. And for me, the thing that always makes me question stories a little bit is like with the Amityville Horror, everybody who's lived in the house after the Letts family and all of their claims and the Warrens claims, nobody has had anything happen. So I'm like, how did you go from so much demon possession going on that people run screaming from a home, basically, and leave everything behind to nobody has any other issues at the house? And the only reason that they have any issues is because people keep coming by like looky-loos and taking pictures to the point that you actually change the structure so people can't recognize it anymore. Well, sometimes I think also in regards to that, some people may be more affected than others, but you never know. I also wanted to add in a little fun fact, Kelly, is that I was looking up some stuff on Andrea Perone and I wanted to know more about the books and stuff like that. And so I find her on Facebook and she's talking about Hurricane Ian and coming through it. And I'm like, wait, where does she live? <laughs> she's in Winter Garden. Right. Just so down the road. She's literally like 30 minutes down the road from us, if even. Let's look at some of the things that the Perones claim to experience. Carolyn seemed to get the brunt of any malevolent energy. And Andrea said of this, whoever the spirit was, she perceived herself to be the mistress of the house. And she resented the competition my mother posed for that position. The haunting activity began the day they moved in. There were objects that inexplicably launched across rooms and smashed into walls. Many objects were moved from place to place. Carolyn would notice that a broom she had placed in a specific spot would be missing or moved to another spot. Doors opened and slammed on their own. Books fell off the shelves in the library. Disembodied spirits were seen by the five Perone daughters, but they seemed to be harmless. Then the energy shifted into a darker space. Horrendous smells like decaying flesh were smelled in the house. The girls' beds would shake every morning at 5.15 a.m. I wonder what was special about that time. That's strange. I mean, it'd be one thing if it was midnight or 3 a.m. or 3, what is it, 3.33? (laughs) 3.33. But (laughs) 5.15? What is that? Andrea said her youngest sister crawled into bed with her the first night they slept in the house. And she told Andrea that she was hearing voices around her bed and that they were saying there were seven soldiers buried in the wall. Now, I know some people who were trying to debunk this said the walls aren't thick enough to bury bodies in the wall. But I think this was referring to stone walls that are on the property. So not the walls of the house, but outside. Oh. Andrea shared an experience Christine had many times. She'd glance at a window only to see the woman standing behind her own reflection in the glass. The spirit was always the same. So much taller than the youngster, she stood out in the crowd. No optical illusions involved, no mistaking it for something else beyond the glass. This was an entity. As if standing at the mirror, there she was, right behind the kid, gazing at the glass with her, just watching Christine, watching her. Roger, the father, every so often had to go down into the creepy basement, which I don't like going into any basement 
I didn't even like going in the finished off basement in my childhood home. (laughs) And then you have these basements that are in these areas like Rhode Island that are going to have like dirt floors and stuff. And then you can only imagine what this is like under a house that was built in 1736. I ain't going down there. I don't care if the boiler ain't working, a hot water heater. I don't know what's down there. I ain't going down there. (laughs) Well, alrighty then. And when he would go down there, he would always feel a cold presence down in the basement and like something was watching him. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. The History Goes Bump podcast has been in production for eight years now, and all eight years have been with Libsyn as our host. If you're looking to get started in podcasting, check out Libsyn.com and use promo code BUMP, that's B-U-M-P, to get up to two months of free podcasting service. Libsyn has always given us great customer service and support. They have real-time podcast analytics so you can see how your show is doing, embeddable podcast players, free podcast guides and tutorials, and everything you'll need to get started in podcasting today. Go to libsyn.com and use promo code BUMP. Kelly, you and I, we've bought a couple of homes in our time. Yes, we have. And we know it is a very stressful thing to do. You need a partner to walk through it with you and keep your feet on the ground. Calm your stresses and nerves. And assure you that you are going to reach that finish line in getting your dream home. Sunbright Realty LLC has over 20 years combined experience managing homes and real estate. Broker owner Lou Salvamini is someone you can definitely trust. The really cool thing about Lou and Sunbright Realty is they can not only help you sell your home, but help you look for your dream home and help you take care of it afterward. We trust Lou with our home for pest control and taking care of our lawn. He's like a one-stop shop for your home. And you don't have to take our word for it. Here's just one of the five-star reviews that Sunbright Realty's gotten. We highly recommend Sunbright Realty. Lou is an amazing real estate agent who went above and beyond for our family to find us the perfect home. He was always very prompt in returning our calls and messages. He kept us involved in the entire buying process and answered all of the questions we had. He made sure that everything was moving along as necessary to get us to our closing and still answers questions that come up about our new home even after our closing. Lou really is an amazing person and we highly recommend him if you are looking for a home. For more information, check out sunbrightrealty.com. Look Look on on the bright side. Carolyn started to be physically attacked. Her leg was cut with what seemed to be a large needle one night. The energy got so bad in the house that the Perones sought help, and Ed and Lorraine Warren would answer the call. The Warrens were the ones who concluded that the spirit haunting the house was Bathsheba Sherman. They referenced the wound Carolyn got that may have come from a sewing needle as proof. Lorraine conducted a seance, and as this went on, Andrea watched from a hiding place. She described what she saw as best she could. The 200-pound table seemed to lift from the floor. It seemed as though her mother became possessed and started speaking in a language she didn't recognize. Then she watched her mother rise out of her chair. Andrea wrote, I thought I was going to pass out. My mother began to speak a language not of this world, in a voice not her own. Her chair levitated and she was thrown across the room. The seance was stopped and Carolyn went back to being herself. Roger was enraged at what had happened and he ordered the Warrens out of his house. He apparently had knocked out one of Ed's teeth when he punched him before they left. 
Yeah, that's what Roger says happened. He goes, I think I knocked one of his teeth out. So he clearly gave him a, a punch and was like, you're endangering my wife. And that would be terrifying if this, what Andrea's describing, if this really happened, which I, I don't know. Right. But, but if something happened to make Roger get really, really angry. Yeah, absolutely. And so he's like, you people need to get out of my house. You're making it very dangerous here. Because if you think about it, it sounds like a lot of the stuff that's been happening up to this point while it might be a little scary that you've got some ghosts hanging out in your house and maybe doing some stuff, you don't have anything that's like physically attacking. And here, now we've got some physically attacking, literally picking up his wife and throwing her across the room. We have no idea if the Schwartz family or Norma Sutcliffe experienced anything paranormal. I'm thinking no, because they've never come forward to say so. But the Heinzen said activity started for them the moment they got ownership of the house. Now, keep in mind that they were actively seeking activity. So it's not like you just have people who are moving into this house and then all of a sudden they're like, wait a minute, nobody told us about this. They're ghost hunters. They're paranormal investigators. Right. They knew the rumors about this house. Obviously, the movies have been out. So they heard disembodied footsteps, heard weird knocking. And Corey told the New York Post, again, this is a regular paper. And when I say lights flashing in rooms, it's rooms that don't have lights in there to begin with. So we'd see this flashing going on and they're like, there's no lights to flash in there. Interesting. It's like a lamp's going on and off. Corey and his family spent the first four months in the house mostly hanging out in one room so the spirits could get used to them. That didn't keep a shadow figure from visiting them. And Corey said in a Wall Street Journal article, again, another normal, regular newspaper, once we realized we were both awake and both seeing it, it was gone. So it's like he and his wife woke up and saw this shadow figure and it took off. There definitely seems to be spirits in this home, but let's debunk the main one that the movie focused upon. The movie claims that a witch named Bathsheba Sherman caused a malevolent activity. Basically, she was said to be a devil worshiper who had killed two children and hanged herself on the Arnold property. The truth about Bathsheba is that she was born in Rhode Island in 1812. She married a farmer named Judson Sherman in 1844. The Shermans lived on a farm that neighbored the Arnolds, and there are stories that a baby died in Bathsheba's care. Stories claim that it appeared that a sewing needle had been thrust into the base of the baby's skull, but a court didn't find her guilty of any wrongdoing. There is no court record and no record of the baby's death. Yeah, so as far as we're concerned, that's just a legend, that there was no baby that died in her care at all. The Shermans had four children, only one of whom, a son, made it into adulthood. And that's based on census information, they definitely had four children, but three and their daughters don't show up in the record later on. So we have to assume that they've passed. She never hanged herself. Bathsheba died of old age on May 25th, 1885, four years after her husband Judson had passed. And everybody makes a big deal. She turned to stone before she died. It's said that she died of paralysis, which probably more than likely she had a stroke. I would imagine so. There were claims that she was buried on the Arnold property. But her grave is located in the historic cemetery across the street from the fire station and rotary in downtown Harrisville, off of Harrisville Main Street and Callahan School Street. So the movie's claims and the Warrens' claims about Bathsheba are untrue. Historians do claim, however, that Bathsheba had a bad reputation with the help they had on their farm. She was mean to the staff and might have even beaten or starved them. So I'm kind of wondering along the lines of like the Salem witch trials where you may have had somebody who the town didn't really care for. A lot of rumors get started because this person is mean or something of that nature. Sure. Why does there seem to be unexplained activity here? What could be causing this? 
Other claims that have been made about the house include three suicides, two by hanging, one by poison, two drownings, four men who froze to death, and the murder of 11-year-old Prudence Arnold by farmhand William E. Knowlton. From what we could find, several of the people involved were members of the Arnold family, but the incidents happened at other properties. Not even the same location. No. That doesn't mean that the generational property isn't calling their souls here. So maybe because they're related to the Arnold family, they're coming back to the property. But all these claims about what happened here, most of them are not true. They did not happen here. Jarvis Smith did die of exposure on the farm. So out of all of those claims, there's only one that we could find that was for sure true. And I believe it's because he drank so much that he passed out and froze to death outside. Oh, my goodness. The website for The Conjuring House claims that there are two spirits in the house for whom they know the identity. The first is a ghost named Abigail Cook Arnold, who was the daughter of Martha Hopkins and Sylvanius Cook. She came to live on the Arnold property after marrying farmer John Arnold. They had 14 children together. Oh, my word. I know I say it all the time, but back in the day, that many children without all the drugs, I can't even... Without all the drugs. You mean for pain? (laughs) Yeah, but apparently it didn't affect her because Abigail lived to the ripe old age of 93 and she was buried in Burlville. She must have loved the farmhouse because she has stayed and protects it. She warns investigators when a malevolent spirit is around and will either tell those living to get out for safety or perhaps she's telling the mean spirits to leave. The other ghost has been named Matthew Kay. Through various investigations, the house has pieced together what they can about this individual. Matthew never lived at the house. He ended up here when he was trying to make his way to the light, which makes some investigators think that the property has a portal, as I was talking about earlier. Maybe that's why we're having some of these entities, maybe even possibly some evil type ones. If it's a portal, we got a two-way street here going. Matthew claims to have died in 1888 when he was 27 years old, and he was apparently married at the time of his death. Comments he's made through EVP and spirit box sessions indicate that he is fun-loving, wonders why women wear pants, (laughs) and that modern music is strange. He once referred to a smartphone as witchcraft. So I'm thinking, you know, somebody got out an app on the phone and is like, here, I've got an app on this phone if you want to speak into it or something. And he's probably like, just said witchcraft. (laughs) Probably. Zach Baggins and Ghost Adventures investigated the house for Halloween in 2019. They were joined by Andrea Perone. Zach interviewed a friend of the Heinzens named Bill Brock. He witnessed a black mist in the house that came together and moved forward and terrified him. He's experienced many things in the house that he can't explain. The Heinzens' son, Kyler, had an experience that had him leaving the house for two weeks. He told Zach what happened. The thing he saw was a black shadow around midnight, and it was moving in the corners of the house. Kyler had been asleep and something had awakened him and he was petrified when he saw the shadow. The reason why I believe this kid is number one, he's a teenager and he was reluctant. They had to, we didn't see this on the show, but they clearly had to talk to him a little bit to see if he would go and talk to Zach and tell him what happened. And so he seemed pretty reluctant to even do that. And when he was talking to Zach, I mean, his eyes were kind of looking all over the place. I got the feeling that this kid really experienced this and he really was scared and he didn't seem to me like he wanted to go back in that house. They said he left for two weeks, but I don't know if he hung out very much at this house. Zach then had Andrea take the crew into the house and give them a tour. I thought this had to be an amazing experience. You know, I make fun of Zach Bagans all the time and stuff, but 
putting myself in his shoes, you get to go into this house that everybody's been talking about and building up for all these years. And you get to go in with the woman who had lived there and had all this stuff happen and tell you about it. Right. I I don't think it gets any better than that. Whether you believe any of this stuff or not, that's pretty cool. Before entering, she told Zach that Lorraine had brought a medium with her, that Andrea believed unleashed something in the house that nearly killed her mother. She also feels that Bathsheba is involved in the activity. But I think that has clearly been debunked. I think so. I I don't think Bathsheba has anything to do with this. If something is saying it's Bathsheba, I would say it's impersonating somebody. Right. The EMF spiked high on the staircase that led to the girls' rooms. Later, cell phone footage revealed a light in this room, flashing brightly and then dimming. Now, of course, we couldn't see inside the room. So was there somebody at the light switch playing with it? Maybe it was blinking in such a way that I didn't think you could control that even with the light switch. The crew felt unwell while sitting in the dining room, and they felt like they could see dark figures out of the corner of their eyes, and they all felt shaky. This clearly could all just be a result of anxiety. Yeah, I mean, if you're going into a place that you hear all these stories about, you might just be feeling some kind of anxiety about it to begin with. Sure. Part of the problem that I had with this entire episode is that most of what they experienced was personal stuff which does not play across TV very well. And we have to trust them. And I, I don't know that right. I trust these guys. So that was part of my problem. I'm like, it was cool when the EMF started spiking because it was spiking in ways that you wouldn't think it would. Keith and Carl Johnson were investigators that came to the Perone house before the Warrens. I was unaware of that until I watched this episode. So I'm like, oh, so there were people here before the Warrens. They felt like it was a little bit too much for them. So I don't know if they're the ones who contacted the Warrens, if they told the Perones to connect with the Warrens. I'm not sure what all happened to get all of them together. But these two guys came in before the Warrens ever did. So these aren't guys who are looking to get fame or anything like that, at least back then. I don't know about now. Carolyn saw their ad in a paper and called them to come help. They joined the crew for the investigation and told Zach that they immediately felt foreboding feelings the minute they got out of the car. That was not only the first time they investigated the place, but this time too. The Johnsons heard something shuffling around in the empty bedrooms overhead. Carl later saw something dark and shapeless coming down from the bedrooms towards him. Keith used the name Jesus, and an open window came slamming down closed and shook the house. And this is back when they were investigating with the Perones. Wow. This was a window that had been stuck open from the August heat. Oh, my. So they couldn't even get the window to come down when they were trying to get it to come down, and it slams down when he uses the name of Jesus. They brought some older equipment to use during the investigation, which included Polaroids and old tape recorders. So you can imagine what we're doing here with Zach and the crew and these guys is winding the clock back to the 1970s and using the equipment that they used back then. Sure. Carl and Zach felt a cold air mass in a bedroom and there was that electric, you know, the pins and needle feeling. Mm hmm. Familiar. We're describing that. (laughs) And something that was cool is like when I was feeling that with Kathy at the St. Augustine Lighthouse, the only thing we had to back that up was her saying that she was feeling it too. And then we had the EMF go off. Well, here we didn't have an EMF going off, but you could see the hair on Carl's arms was sticking up. It was very clear. Oh, wow. So something was making that happen. The whole group heard a growl after Keith said a protective blessing and the camera caught it. The SLS camera mapped out two figures in the doorway of a room near where Zach was sitting at one point. And a Polaroid seemed to show a black mass, but it really could have been a human shadow, too. It was hard for me to tell because if somebody was standing in just the right place, they took like two or three pictures at a time like you're supposed to. And it wasn't in the other pictures. I don't know. Did somebody step into it for a minute and step out or was this really a black mass? Carl saw this black mass move in a room 
and then hover over him. And then he almost seemed to be taken over by something. They all got up and got out of the room. And he was like talking and kind of banged his fist on the table a couple times. Was it that something was oppressing him, possessing him? I don't know. Because again, it could have been an act. And none of it was proven with any devices. So Julie Jordan wrote for People Magazine in October of 2021. Around 11 p.m., we started our investigation in the library and turned off all the lights. Within minutes, a nearby motion detector was triggered repeatedly for no apparent reason. There were also loud creaks in the living room, as if someone was walking by. Upstairs, we sat down in the bedroom where the attacks took place. Again, a motion detector went off, and we saw a ball of light in a corner where there was no obvious source. Shadows seemed to be closing in on us, and our terror prompted us to all pile up in the bed. It's a bunch of girls. Yep. I can say I would do that too. And she goes on. What can I say? There's just something about four grown women snuggling together that can clearly make things feel a lot less scary. Downstairs in the basement was a lesson in just how hard it is to navigate in the dark. All of your senses become heightened and every little noise causes a jump scare. And don't get us started on how many snakeskins dangle from the foundation. Oh, that's creepy (laughs) enough for me. You would have hated it. (laughs) I would have been like, oh, I know this species and that species. Yeah, you'd be fascinated. (laughs) As we were standing in a room next to an old well, a table somehow shifted into Liz's leg, even though no one was next to it. So when you go on YouTube and you look up articles, there are literally dozens of people who have been in this house and done investigations. I decided to share this from People Magazine because People Magazine doesn't normally carry paranormal stuff. These are four grown women. And you know how they met each other, Kelly? How? All their kids go to the same school. So while they're waiting for the kids to get out of school, they're standing around talking and, hey, we all like creepy stuff. Let's go do investigations together sometimes. Very fun. So this was one of them they decided to do. So I thought perfect for our audience, more believable. It's recent in 2021 and for it to be in People Magazine. Kelly, you and I are open-minded skeptics. We are. So I do like to hear what skeptics feel about some of this stuff. And of course, The Conjuring House comes up on the radar for skeptics all the time. And Joe Nickel wrote an article for the Skeptical Inquirer after visiting the house in 2016 when Norma Sutcliffe opened the house up to him. I liked this article because, number one, Norma Sutcliffe was the one who still owned the house. She hasn't had any of this stuff going on. And he's writing an article after going to the house. This isn't just some guy who's going, I'm going to debunk all this stuff. This is a bunch of bolt. He actually went to the house and talked to a woman who'd lived there. So it gives him a little bit more credibility. He's not just standing throwing rocks at a house from outside kind of thing. He felt that he was able to debunk many of the claims that Andrea Perone made in her book. Doors that opened on their own were most likely due to being warped from time and weather and having these antique latches that didn't hold properly. Norma said that she and her husband Jerry had to fix some of them when they moved in because they would walk past it and it would unlatch and open. Right. If you're like heightened thinking that you've got ghosts and that happens, your immediate thought is, oh my gosh, who opened that door rather than going, well, maybe the latch just doesn't hold because the floor is warped and that kind of thing. Apparitions Carolyn saw in her room were blamed on sleep paralysis. We all know what sleep paralysis is, not necessarily anything that has to do with paranormal. It's just a normal human physical scientific kind of thing. Fly infestations in winter were blamed on cluster flies because Andrew describes having all of these flies that would be like, especially up in the attic, And anybody who's watched anything with the Amityville Horror, they put a lot of emphasis on lots of flies. So it means all the devil's around, that kind of thing. But cluster flies is really a thing. I looked it up. The University of New Hampshire describes them in this way. The large sluggish flies known as cluster or attic flies, Polynia rudis and relatives, 
often invade New Hampshire homes in fall and turn into wintertime pests. They are particularly noticeable on warm winter days when they become active and find their way into living quarters. Just when you think you have them under control, more appear the next day, creating the impression they are breeding inside the house. In reality, they are only using your home as a place to spend winter and do not cause damage to the buildings, furniture, or occupants. Nickel doesn't believe that anything paranormal happened to the Perones. But how about you all, you listeners? Kelly, do you think something happened to them? I would venture to say that perhaps. <laughs> is, that, is that a nice politically correct answer? <laughs> yeah, and I, I think the reason why I lean to probably some stuff was going on here. Not only did Andrea take the time to write these books, but you've got four sisters and her father who's still alive. These are all people that could say, you're full of crap. Why are you writing that and lying about our family? Rather, the family's all gotten on board. They were there when they were making the Conjuring movies. They were they took pictures with the little girl actresses that played them in the movie. I would think to get a whole family to agree to something is pretty tough. And one of them, I think it's Christine, is very reluctant to talk about anything that happened in the house. So I feel like at least definitely for her, something happened that she just doesn't like to revisit and stuff. Uh, Roger clearly hit Ed Warren. All right. of us would probably like to do that, too. But <laughs> he actually did it. And he had to have a reason to do that, I would think, and not to have the Warrens come back into your home. I think something happened. Is it to the intensity of what we've been told? I don't know. But here's the thing we always talk about, too, Kelly. Not only do we have possibly maybe there's a portal here that's calling other spirits to come. It's a way station and stuff is just passing through. But we talk about haunted people. Was there some spirits that were connected to them? I don't know what all the other parameters are that could be going on here, because clearly it doesn't seem like anything was happening after the fact. There is one thing that Norma told Joan Nickel that it happened that also happened to the Perones. And this was a blue flash of light that came down through the chimney and shot out through the fireplace. And it happened several times to the Perones. Norma said it happened once for them. They're wondering if it was ball lightning. But Interesting. to have but it happen how... to both families, yeah, that seems a bit weird because to have ball lightning ever happen, it's very, very, very rare. But that was the only thing that Norma mentioned that was something that was weird. The Conjuring House certainly has a big reputation when it comes to claims of paranormal activity. One has to wonder if it's the people that cause the haunting or is the property itself actually haunted. Is there even a haunting going on here? That, that is for you to decide. decide. And of course, it could be all of the people coming to investigate that are pulling stuff in, too. Very true. Creating tulpas. Yes, exactly. Not only could we be creating tulpas, but we're just calling spirits and attracting them to come, kind of putting out a, like a lighthouse with right. a light. Come on in. So we could have that going on as well. Very true. want to have you guys check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. Want to let everybody know we do have Cemetery Bingo going on this month, October 22nd and 23rd of 2022. We have the card up in the Spooktacular Crew, so please come on into the Spooktacular Crew on Facebook. You will find that under the Files tab. If you would like us to email you a copy of that, you can also email us at that address, historygoesbump at gmail.com. We'll be happy to send one to you. It's Blackout Bingo. You try to get as many symbols as you can. Whoever gets the most wins, if we have a tie where everybody gets blackout or everybody gets, you know, most of them, you want to find the most unusual stone out there with different symbols or what have you or weird sculpture or something like that. Whoever has the most unique picture for that one will be our winner. Or sometimes we just have people vote in the Spectacular Crew so we don't have to decide. Yeah, exactly. 
But it's great fun. It gives you a chance to get out into the cemetery with your family and check out all the cool symbols that are out there. And speaking of Cemetery Bingo, the woman who created the cards to begin with, Suzanne Silk, sent us an email about cradle graves. She said, thought you'd be interested in this. Have you ever heard of cradle graves? I haven't until this blog post. Scroll down and see the pictures of these beautiful graves. And the name of the article that she sent was Oki Road Trip 2019, Beating the Clock at Little Rock, Arkansas's Mount Holly Cemetery by Adventures in Cemetery Hopping. So it says, two little girls on October 1st, 1879, George Besham married Julie Parmel Beale. He continued rising up the ladder as an attorney and invested in real estate. Their first child, Pearl Reed Basham, was born on July 22, 1880. She died on November 7, 1886, at the age of six. Martha Parma Basham was born on December 3, 1882, and died on August 10, 1887. Both George and Julia were so ill themselves they could not attend her funeral. That would just Oh, suck. my goodness. You might recognize the open style of the ovals from recent posts I've written. Both are cradle graves with decorative urns on the foot. It's as if you had like an oval grave, I guess, in the shape of what a cradle would look like. And theirs are full of flowers, which is really cool. So I'm sure that's why they call them cradle graves is because that's what it looks like. The Basham family plot features the two little Basham girls dressed in the clothing they would have worn at the time. So it's their sculptures on the top there. They were carved in Italy for the local monument company owned by William L. Funston. When the sculptures arrived, the family wasn't pleased with the likeness and had them sent back to Italy for a better rendering. Oh, my. And then the woman who wrote this said, I didn't know when I was visiting in May 2019 that both of these monuments and the statue to the left of it were vandalized in 2016. Apparently, repairs were made to put them back in good condition. Oh, I hate that. So, yeah, those are really, really unique. Very cool wonder if you guys have seen any cradle graves before. I've never seen one in person before. Yeah, they're before. beautiful. Yeah, very neat. So thanks for sharing that with us, Suzanne. I want to thank you guys for joining us on this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to thank Crystal McCurry for raising your donation. We're going to be moving you into a chest tomb. We want to welcome back Preston Headley. We're going to be putting you under an obelisk tombstone and welcome into the cemetery. Jessica Berg and Vicki Pollock. Both of you are going to be put in chest tombs. Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher or your favorite podcast catcher. It's not like what we see in the movies where they're splitting green, where they're spitting, splitting, splitting pea soup, (laughs) splitting, split pea. The Perone family would break the generational ownership when they bought the property in December, December. There were objects that inexplicably, I don't know if I'm going to be able to say that word. Inexplicably, Mm -hmm. inexplicably, inexplicably. There were objects that inexplicably launched a crunch. <laughs> launched a crunch. <laughs> you can do it. You can do it.
The Conjuring House certainly has a big rep. 